Good morning, everybody. Uh, wonderful to see you all and see more and more faces. Actually, I can see actually some of the faces now, which is um, which is even better. Um, please make sure that Mark is open in front of you. That's what we're going to look together. But why don't we um, talk to God and ask that He would actually speak to each one of us through His Word this morning? Let's pray. Our loving Father, Your graciousness knows no bounds. You are so persistent, um, so merciful. Um, so, so just impatient with our um, frustrating ignoring of your word that we do so often. Father, may that not be true today. May we listen, listen attentively, reflect deeply and respond with deep conviction and perseverance ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you don't need to show your hands at this, um, but I want you to think of what your answer to it would be. Um, but who here owns some property? That's the first question. Second question is, who rents it out to other people? And then the third one, which is probably my category, who hopes to someday have property that they rent out to other people? That, that, that's certainly me. I wonder if you know about the curious case of Bill Gertos. Now, I suspect that Gary Pritchard does... But let me tell you about it. Um, I was reading it just this week on a legal website. Bill Gertos was a property developer. And in 1998, he came across the abandoned Inner West property in um, Ashbury. And he found that its doors were unhinged and the house was completely open. So the home, in fact, had been leased by an elderly woman who'd passed away earlier that year. Gerdos decided to take possession of the property, he changed the locks, did restoration work and then let it out and made money out of it. Now eventually the family of the actual owners of the property, um, because they'd been a long-term tenant, they just hadn't really been paying attention to it and, and it had passed on to children. When they found out about it 20 years later, they went, well that's not good, <laughs> we're going to do something about that. Um, and it all went to court. And Gerdos got it. So were you aware that in New South Wales, if you have occupied somebody else's property without them doing anything about it, for 12 years, it then becomes yours by squatter's rights? It could be something like that property that is worth millions of dollars, but you don't act, you'll lose it. Now, how do you feel about that? Think about how you feel about that. If, if you owned that property, if it was something your parents left to you, what, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that's right? Someone else taking something that belongs to you, claiming it for themselves, renting it out and keeping the money and if you don't catch it in 12 years, you lose it. Even though it's yours. It's hard not to feel like that's just a bit not right. It's, it sounds like theft, doesn't it? Now let me ask you another question. It might sound like it's a very, very different one, but there is a relationship. Is saying thanks but no thanks to Jesus really that bad? I mean, really? I mean, we're not talking about super bad people over here. We're talking about your friends and your neighbours that, that just go, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying and yeah, it's just not for me. Is it? Isn't that bad? Does it deserve 
judgment? Does it really matter if someone just chooses not to follow Jesus? Now, your head might give one answer to this, but I suspect your heart might give another one. But what if I was to put that same act another way? Do you think it's okay to live in God's world, to take everything that he has provided for you, claim it for your own, and refuse to give him any honour in return? Today's passage brings us to another conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And that conflict will give rise to a parable that is actually so clear in its meaning that the Jewish leaders will become even more determined than they've ever been to get Jesus out of the way. They are angry because they see their authority being challenged. But the irony here is going to be that they are too blind to see that it is they who are the authority thieves. And the authority whom they rejected is way above their pay grade. Now, if you're interested in getting a transcript, there's some transcripts up the back, and so you can follow that through if you'd like, if that's going to be helpful as you listen. But what's going to be especially helpful is for your Bible to be open. Um, it starts in verse 27 of chapter 11. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you the authority to do this? Now, you may have heard the expression to return to the scene of the crime. Well, the word again there in verse 27 needs to remind us of what happened last time Jesus was there. The previous day, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem being celebrated by the crowd as the Messiah. He arrived at the temple and then he went on a minor rampage. He stormed through the temple courts. This is a big space, big space. He was throwing over tables. He was driving out merchants. Anyone who tried to carry some merchandise across the courtyard, he would block and turn away. This is a lengthy episode. It is really making quite a scene. And don't forget then at the end of that, he quotes scripture in judgment of those who permitted that kind of sacrilege to take place in the temple. The temple had been corrupted from a place of prayer and had become a den of thieves. They were his words. There and then, the leaders had determined that Jesus needed to be killed. And the only thing that stopped them was their fear of the crowds that were around. So if you're there, you can imagine that the tension would have been palpable. And what does Jesus do the next day? He goes back, right back there. No, maybe it's not a bad idea to hide away and lay a little low for a while. No, what does Jesus do? He walks through those same temple courts openly. And look whose attention he attracts. Not just the chief priests, not just the teachers of the law, not just the elders, all three groups. Alright, so this is the combined leadership of the Jewish people. And it is quite clear that they haven't calmed down from the day before. They challenge him with the equivalent of saying, who the hell do you think you are? You're not one of us and we're the leaders of Israel. Look at us. We represent the whole lot. 
So who gave you the right to come to this place of all places and do all of this and say all of this in the temple? Now, their actual question is twofold. What authority do you have and who gave it to you? But if they think they can bully Jesus around, they have another thing coming. It's one thing to claim authority, it's another thing to actually have it. And Jesus' reply oozes authority. Look at verses 29 to 32. Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. Notice a few things here. Notice that Jesus is the one making demands and he is not answerable to them and he doesn't concede that for a minute. He will not take a back step before them. The NIV has accurately conveyed the power of Jesus' response there. There's two imperatives at the beginning and the end. Answer me. And at the end, tell me. The exclamation mark is deserved. If you're imagining Jesus with a stern brow and a pointed finger and a pursed lips, you've probably got the right picture. But look, let's have a look at Jesus' question of them. He says, I'm just going to ask you one thing and you'll answer me if you can answer it then I'll answer you he commands them to give an answer to who they believed John the Baptist was now this is brilliant ironically they're the ones who keep on trying to trap Jesus and fail but when Jesus it's his turn first go he nails it he's traps them easily. You see, for years, up and down the Jordan River, John had been baptising thousands of people, calling them to repentance, calling them to commit to God and recommit to him. He'd been martyred at the hands of Herod for daring to challenge his immoral relationship and call the law to testify against him. But even more importantly for this context, John has baptised Jesus. And when John baptised Jesus, he clearly and repeatedly identified Jesus as the coming Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was not done in a quiet room. This was in public in front of the thousands of people that came to John all the time. So in one move, Jesus has challenged these so-called authorities to make a call as to the origin of John's ministry. Was he a fake? Just an earthly guy making it up as he went along, baptising on his own authority? Or was he from heaven? Was he sent as a prophet, given the authority of God himself? Well, the leader's pick what the trap is but they're caught in it see they know that the public was convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet and so if they go and say he's not a prophet then they'll be in a lot of trouble they were afraid of the crowd but they also realize 
that if they said that John was a prophet, then they are inherently rebuked for not listening to a prophet when he said and testified about Jesus. They're meant to claim to be the religious leadership, but they are denying a prophet. That's a pretty bad claim against them. Or they're claiming, they're either denying him or they're denying his testimony. So in rejecting Jesus, they'd be rejecting John, and rejecting John, they're rejecting the authority of God. But before we see their answer, it's important here to reflect on what this reveals was actually going on inside them. And this is where I think we need to pay attention, especially. Notice that Mark tells us everyone believed John to actually be a prophet. But they clearly hadn't even countenanced the idea themselves. They'd never taken it seriously. With the exception of a few, like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish leading body, ruling body, and Nicodemus, for most of the Jewish leaders, it hadn't seemed to dawn on them to actually consider the possibility properly what the answer to that question was, right? They, they never even seemed to engage with the possibility that John actually was a prophet. They're just trying to think about how to use it expediently and politically. They never bothered to even countenance, could Jesus actually have been the Messiah? They never seriously asked that question of themselves. They dismissed those things from their minds so quickly it was like the seed being snatched from the pathway that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower earlier in Mark. It reveals this self-interested scepticism that is completely lacking in integrity. A scepticism that asks questions in order to fend off the truth, not to search for the truth. You see the difference there? Because what they really wanted was to serve their own political and personal ends. Their denial of John's and Jesus' authority is done in, in as much in the sense of being in denial as much as it was a denial in the sense of an overt rejection. There is this tragically stubborn blindness to them. Now, this is why I want you to ponder this, because this is not just their problem, is it? It is very common today. And my bet is that most of you have encountered it. Maybe even from your own friends and family. Maybe you can even look back to a time in your life when you were doing it. You know those conversations when you're discussing Christian matters and someone has asked you a question that they're pretty sure and confident is unanswerable, right? And you actually surprise them by being able to answer it because there is an answer to it. But then what do they do? They suddenly shift to another question. Yeah, yeah, but then what about dot, 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 and throw something else in there. The yeah, in yeah, but, has meant nothing to them. It's not a real yeah. They're not accepting it. Your answer to the question is not engaged with. Your answer to their question is not considered. Your answer to their question has not been reflected upon. They're just moving to the next thing. It's more like a fencing bout than it is genuine inquiry. Thrust, parry, thrust, parry, riposte. Here's a suggestion though. 
Because I want to say that that does not have integrity. That is not inquiring after truth. That is playing a game and being smart. So here's a question. Here's one way that you might try to gently challenge friends or family who do this. With warmth to your voice, call them on it. Look, I can't help but notice that you haven't really engaged with my answer to the question that you just asked. So, so just let's pause. Before we move on, can I ask you, what do you think are the implications of the answer that I just gave, if it's true? You know, what are the implications for you, if it's true? Just, just pause that conversation and say, hang on, no, no, we're not, we're not moving on to the next question. You asked me something and I've answered it and I want to know what you think of that. I want you to reflect upon it. Ask a question that slows the conversation a bit so that it becomes real engagement with truth and not a debate that you're both trying to win because that doesn't get anyone anywhere. Don't fall for that. Well, Jesus is not trying to win over his loved ones. He's rebuking blind shepherds. And caught by his trap, the option they choose is, as we say these days, to dog it, right? They plead ignorance. Oh, we don't know. Which is, of course, half true. But theirs is an ignorance of a culpable kind. It's really more not we don't know, it's we refuse to know. But remember, Jesus is the one in charge. And he doesn't relinquish his authority. Jesus said, well then, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You want to hide? You can stay hidden in front of everybody. Well, he doesn't tell them plainly. But in the parable that comes after that, he does actually answer their question. And the real answer becomes starkly apparent. So let's have a look at that parable, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, he dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. All right, let's just deal with that for the moment. At face value, Jesus begins with this generic sort of description of, of a landowner who plants a vineyard. But it's quite a lengthy one. You may have noticed from the, and, and, and you may have noticed from the reading of Isaiah immediately before it, that the details are pretty similar, aren't they? I mean, that kind of stood out, didn't it? The context of Isaiah chapter 5 is interesting. Because Isaiah chapter 5 is a message against complacent, presumptuous Israel. A nation which at that time was enjoying relative peace, even prosperity, but it had become corrupt and it had become selfish and immoral and its leaders had failed to lead the nation in godliness and point them back towards God. Isaiah likens Israel, did you notice, to a vineyard lovingly formed and created by God, but tragically failing to, just like last week, bear any fruit. Instead, all it bore was rotten. 
let me remind you of a few verses of it. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Sound familiar? Um, then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. My vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And then he goes on, as you remember in that reading, to condemn the leadership who had led it so far astray. The correspondence between Jesus' parable and Isaiah 5 is so blatantly clear that Jesus is being pretty obvious right here about what his parable is going to be about. He's not really hiding it. And it's going to concern God and all of his people. And it's begun with a very clear reminder of who the nation belongs to. Now, I want you to notice the description, I'll put it up on the screen, of the owner's creation of his vineyard. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, moved it to another place, and at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, it's a little bit more obvious, I've tried to emphasise, it's a little bit more obvious in the original language, but did you count how many verbs there are? They're read on the screen before. Seven. Right? The Bible often uses the number seven and multiples of it when it is referring to the work of God, the creative work of God. It's the number of divinity, it's the number of creation, it's the number of completeness and it's the number of wholeness. And those seven verbs take us through the planting of the vineyard, the protecting of the vineyard, the entrusting of the vineyard to leaders and the harvesting from the vineyard. What That covers the scope. This parable is summarising the whole story of God with his people Israel. This is not about a moment in time. This is the whole Israelite story in four verses of a parable, or however many that was, two verses of a parable. It is God's vineyard, it's God's nation, it's God's kingdom, and it is to work for his glory. But do you notice as well, it's a vineyard, it's not a rose garden. Vineyards have a purpose. They're not an aesthetic garden. They are plants that exist to produce something. Fruit. And so it is hardly unreasonable when the master sends someone to the tenants to collect some of it as the conclusion of his vineyard work. He did it all to get fruit. Does not the one who created, nurtured and protected and the vineyard have a right to see the fruit that the vineyard produces? Well, it's now that the twist comes to the story. Instead of giving the servant some of the fruit so that he could take it back to the master who had entrusted them with running his vineyards, this is what the tenants do. They abuse this servant. But they seized him, verse 3, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another. That one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. I mean, it sounds horrible, even in a parable. Unthinkable. 
How could they be so foolish? How in this story could be they, they so wicked, so ungrateful, so persistently evil in what they did? It sounds evil in a parable until you realize that this is the history of Israel and its leaders. It is actually descriptive of the way they treated the messengers of God's word who came from God to bring them back, to challenge them on their ungodliness, to warn them that if they don't change, judgment's coming, to call them back to the Lord, this continual persistent message. It's there to be seen if you read your Old Testament in the way they treated Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah, as you know from last year, and Ezekiel, if you read that, and multiple others. According to Jewish tradition, Isaiah himself, who obviously wrote Isaiah chapter 5, died when he was cut in half by a saw by King Manasseh, the son of David. It's actually what happened. And what about the owner here? Our focus easily goes to the tenants, doesn't it? And gosh, how horrible what they did. But look at how patient and persistent the owner is. He just keeps sending servants. You'd think once would have been enough. But no, the tenants are given opportunity after opportunity to reform, to do the right thing, to get a chance to come back, even after all they've done. And again and again, they just refuse and they even get more and more brazen. But verse 6 is when the parable gets particularly personal and immediate. And the stakes are at their highest. Verse 6, he had one left to send. A son whom he loved. See how Jesus is slowing down this story so that you focus on this bit. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. There is just one left. And it calls to mind the one question that Jesus asked of them in chapter 11, verse 29. This one is going to be the final word, the most extreme call, the the owner's own beloved son. Surely, I mean, even if they don't respect my servants, right? Surely then they're going to respect my son. It's my vineyard. Verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I mean, what's stunningly foolish logic, first of all, if you think about it, there are no squatter's rights laws here. You can't truly think that you do a vile act like that And you're somehow going to become heirs of the vineyard that never belonged to you in the first place? Their reprehensible greed leads them to commit a sin that is beyond the pale. And yet the owner is still the owner. He's never stopped being the owner. And now they have made themselves so obnoxious that he is guaranteed to act against them. But before we move on, notice some of the other details there. Jesus is not being subtle here. Notice their description of the vineyard, his description of the vineyard as the inheritance. A word repeatedly used by God throughout the Old Testament to speak of his people. 
The land of Israel was given as an inheritance to the people of Israel, but Israel themselves were God's own inheritance. And they're the vineyard. And one more detail is worth noticing. After the son is killed, what do they do? They throw him outside the vineyard. They don't just kill the son, they treat him as cursed. Just like the ultimate punishment given to an Israelite in the Old Testament law to be cut off from your people and discarded outside the camp. Of course, a prescient foretelling of precisely what they would do later that week to Jesus. You see, the offence could not be greater. And this is the offence that the Jewish leadership had planned for Jesus. Well, there's only going to be one conclusion to this parable. Well, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? It's obvious. He's going to come and he's going to kill those tenants and he's going to give the vineyard to others. Of course that's what the owner's going to do. It's inconceivable that he would do otherwise. And the word kill there is literally destroy. It's kind of an amped up version of killed. The tenant's end will be violent and full of wrath. He's going to come down on them like a ton of bricks is another way of putting it. And there are ominous implications for those listening to the parable as well. The word for the owner there in verse 12 is the word kurios, which means Lord, as the word they used of God. Just in case they forgot that God is the owner that Jesus is describing. But perhaps the most devastating part of this parable for the tenants is the last phrase, and give the vineyard to others. This is a monumental movement in the story of Israel. If the vineyard is talking about being God's people, if the vineyard is really his kingdom that up until that point just meant Israel, what might it mean that the kingdom that previously had just meant the people of Israel is going to be handed over to others? New tenants. Well, the parable is over and it's now time for Jesus to have the scriptures speak. If there was any doubt remaining about who is whom in Jesus' parable, this removes it. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord, the kurios, has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Does it sound familiar? Well, that is what we looked at last week. It's Psalm 118, the very psalm that the crowds quoted as Jesus rose in, rode into Jerusalem. A psalm of God's enduring love. A psalm that speaks of the Lord's vindication of his faithful servant, even though he faces rejection from his enemies. Jesus is saying, in effect, you may reject me, you may reject my authority, but the Lord is my salvation And what you've rejected, he's going to make the cornerstone. I will be vindicated. Well, the priests, the teachers of the law and the elders of Israel know very, very well that Jesus is just pointing one big fat finger at them and he's saying, this is you and they know it. It wasn't hard to work out. Verse 12, then the chief priests, the teachers, the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. 
So ironically, their continued plot to kill Jesus actually confirms the truth of the parable that Jesus has just told. It strengthens their likeness to the tenants and takes the parable to its, towards its conclusion. And the fate of the tenants, that means, is going to be the fate of national Israel and its leadership. God will have his fruit. He will judge those very leaders and the city that they are in and the temple that they're standing in. And the vineyard, the kingdom, will then go out to all of the nations. But what are we to do with Mark chapter 12, right? Because the parable is very clearly about a specific time, a place in history. It's a word to the Israel and its leaders of Jesus' day. It's an indictment and promise of judgment on the Jewish leader that was leadership that was standing right in front of him. It's a promise that God's kingdom would move soon beyond the borders of Israel and that nations would be welcomed in through the gospel. But the tenants aren't us, are they? We've been, we know who they are. They knew who they were. We're the very nations, aren't we, that, that God's kingdom is now open to, unless you've got a Jewish heritage. So what relevance does a judgment upon past generations then have for us? Well, there is a well-known wise saying that those who neglect to learn the his, learn lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Let me say there's two warnings here for 21st century tenants. First of all, it's, it's, there's a warning for those who are not yet Christians. And so if that's you, you today or if you're watching online, there's a warning for you here. The parable is about the kingdom of God. But God is not only the ruler of those who claim him as their God. Nor is it only his people that owe him worship or honour. Nor is it only they who he will hold to account. I want you to have a look at Psalm 96. This is a psalm that we often sing, if it becomes songs of, and it's a joyous song of praise. But I want you to listen to this bit. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, from verse 4. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord. Give to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This isn't a message to Israel at this point. This is a message to the nations. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him. All the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved and he will judge the peoples with equity. Right? So we need, we need to realize that acting like the owner, um, is, and when you're not the owner, is not safe. And nor is it neutral. It is authority theft from the God that gave you life and breath and everything. It is worship theft from the God who is glorious and is worthy of your love and your praise. It's wicked, just like the behaviour of those tenants, and God is going to judge it. 
In other words, there's, there's no, we've all got to absorb that there is no safe or harmless rejection of Jesus. No matter who is doing it, whether it's a Pharisee in Jesus' time or your friendly next door neighbour that you really like hanging out with, it's despising the son and throwing him out of his own vineyard. And so it matters. And so if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need as a matter of urgency to work out exactly who you understand Jesus to be. This would be what I would say to you. You know, there's there's a course called Christianity Explored that you could do. You can talk to your Christian friends or family members. Ask your questions, but do it as a genuine search for the truth of the matter. Now, if Jesus isn't the son that he claimed to be, then no worries, right? He's just some guy from the past that you can pay no more mind to than any other historic figure. But if he is God's son, then he must become your Lord. And if you're a follower of Jesus, keep praying, keep sharing the gospel, keep giving people the opportunity to turn back to God and give him the worship that he is due. That's part of what you're called to do. But there's also a warning here for Christian 21st century tenants. Don't take the opportunity of being in God's kingdom for granted. Don't treat it lightly. And whatever you do, don't get puffed up and self-righteous about it. Please do not do that. Because you see, that's exactly Paul's challenge to the non-Jewish members of the church at Rome. There were Jewish and non-Jewish people in the church at Rome and he had a message for the non-Jewish ones. Jesus' image was a vineyard. Paul likens the kingdom of God to an olive tree. Similar sort of thing, produces fruit, all that sort of stuff. Israel being the root stock of the olive tree and the Gentiles being grafted in like you might with a citrus tree or something like that when the gospel finally came to them so that they could actually be part of what God was building in the world, right? This is what he says in verse 19 of chapter 11. He says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provide that you continue in his kindness. You see, it's it's a call to say, don't take your salvation for granted, don't do what Israel did and make it all about you. Reflect on how kind God has been and keep living in that. But for us, this passage is actually not primarily about warning, it's about hope. God is indeed gracious and merciful. That persistent owner that you read about in that parable is still what God is like. And that grace and mercy has come to us in Jesus, the Son, the one he loved. He sent him for you. And as he shows that grace to others, he does that amazingly, wonderfully through you and through me. We're the servants he sends. And sometimes we feel the world's anger because of it. In John's Gospel, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
if you belong to the world, and he says this to encourage them, if you belong to the world, it would love you as your, its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. If you're a Christian, you're a servant of Christ. You stand in the same line as the prophets and the godly ones of old who spoke the word of a gracious and patient God to a world that he loves, but a world that is facing his judgment. And you may be rejected by the world's tenants. You may be abused for sharing that with them. You may be hated. Even as you bring a word of grace and call people to repent and faith, um, uh, to, to give their God the glory that they have stolen. But even as you do that, do not be discouraged. And do not tire. You are ambassadors of the risen Christ and exalted Christ who was and who is and who is to come. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the Lord has done it and it is marvellous in our eyes. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we pray in thanks to you for your persistent, patient grace. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to treasure it so much that we hand it out to others that they might see it as well. And help us not to be blinded or dulled to the cosmic realities of this world, that it is yours and we answer to you and everyone does. So Father, may we be faithful people who stay in your kindness and always rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Amen. If you can take some time to respond by using the QR code, we're just going to have a few moments of that before we sing our response song.